So you guys, take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. Considering what it means to be, what it means to be fallen and, and how we got that way. While you're turning, I just want to make a public service announcement. Um, I already shared this with the youth this morning. If you are a parent of a teenager in here, bring them tonight to youth group. We are um, we're starting a, a three-week study on the three um, main objections to the Christian faith. Uh, the trustworthiness of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, and God and evil. We'll deal with each one of these uh, over the next three weeks. And uh, I told them this morning to bring their shovels because we're going to be digging deep. And uh, please, if, uh, if you have a youth, send them, bring them, come with them, okay? We'll talk more about that later. Genesis 3, verse 1, I'll read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray. Father, I would ask you to open our, our eyes this morning to see the beauty of your Son in this passage Open our hearts to believe and apply what we, what we read and open our ears so that we may understand what we hear. May we be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this chapter is the, obviously the biblical record of humanity's fall into sin. It's a chapter that we should read often to remind ourselves how this world became the way it is. You see, we only know this world in its, in its fallen state, its fallen world, but it didn't begin that way. When God ended his creative work in Genesis chapter 1, he declared it to be good. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So at the end of chapter 1, God declares the goodness of his creation. And by the end of chapter 3, we have a world that is plunged into complete, 
turmoil because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the account that we, we read today. But before we begin to dig into this actual passage, I need to take a few minutes to address another issue that we have to face any time we open this part of the Bible. Sad, but it's reality. And that is the historicity of Adam and Eve. And by that I mean that Adam and Eve were real people. They were not part of a mythology. They were real people. And Genesis 3 is a true historical account of a real event. Now there is an enormous amount of pressure on Christians in our modern culture to surrender the historical account of a real Adam and Eve and to reinterpret it into something less literal. This comes primarily coming from the conflict between evolutionary theory, which denies that all mankind could have descended from one pair of humans, and then the biblical claim that Adam was the first man. It clearly says that. And that Eve was the mother of all living. And our young people especially feel this tension in their biology and in their life science classes and courses. And it will only get worse as they move through college and higher education. So in order to resolve this conflict, some very creative solutions, sometimes, sometimes even some ridiculously creative solutions have been suggested by, by some theologians or scholars to reinterpret this part of Genesis and really the first 11 chapters of Genesis um, so that it can fit within the framework of evolutionary theory. Now this issue could be a sermon by itself, even a series of many sermons, but I want to make two points before we move on. Number one, the Bible always treats Adam and Eve as real historical people. Okay? They are mentioned 24 times in Scripture, 10 times in the New Testament, and not once are they ever understood as anything other than real historical people. Adam is specifically mentioned in two genealogies, one leading to King David in 1 Chronicles 1 and one leading to Jesus in Luke 3. In fact, the genealogy in Luke 3 is one of the, one of the clearest biblical supports for Adam as a real historical person because it, it's, a, it's a reverse genealogy. It, it starts with Jesus and then it works its way back through David, Abraham, Noah, Adam, all the way to God himself. So if anyone in that list is part of a mythology, then there's no reason for us to believe that God himself is also not a myth. So we have a problem when we try to redefine Adam and Eve as mythical figures or characters in an allegory, as is often done. So number one, the Bible treats Adam and Eve as real people. Number two, both Jesus and Paul treat Adam and Eve as real historical people and the fall as a real historical event with real sin. You can read through Matthew 19. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 to specifically see how Jesus and Paul viewed the historicity of our first parents, but they never assumed, implied, insinuated that they were anything but real people. You see, if we deny a real historical Adam and Eve, 
we open up all kinds of theological problems that put us on a slippery slope that can ultimately and often does end in abandoning the, abandoning the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the authority of Scripture altogether. And I believe that we've given up enough ground in Genesis already. So my challenge to us this morning, and especially our young people, is that when we're presented with uh, an alleged conflict between science and Scripture, don't automatically assume that it's the theology that needs to be adjusted. Take a high, young people, take a high view of Scripture with you into the classroom. Because if you don't, by the time you get through college and into young adulthood, your faith will be dismantled by secularism piece by piece until you're so full of doubt that your entire belief system collapses under the pressure of the secular worldview. So, with that, at least partially addressed, (laughs) briefly, let's get into this text before us. Here in Genesis 3, we are first introduced to humanity's mortal foe. Wasn't there a hymn? Martin Luther's hymn, right? Mighty fortress is our God. Still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. Okay, this is our mortal foe, and we are introduced to him here in Genesis 3, is Satan himself, who approaches Eve using a, a serpent and sets in motion a process of temptation that will, that will end with all of humanity, every one of us in this room, our children, our ancestors, all of us, being alienated from God and brought under the slavery of sin. Revelation 12, 9 calls him the great dragon. That was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. In fact, the first seven verses of this chapter can serve as a case study for temptation. Satan's strategy has really changed very little. And why should it? He managed to deceive our perfect, pristine first parents who were created sinless and innocent in their original state, so we shouldn't think that we would have done any different than them. Today, each time we are tempted to sin, we we find the same basic progression that we see here in Genesis 3. The first thing that I want to point out in Satan's temptation of Eve is the goodness of God doubted. The goodness of God doubted. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, there's a sermon right there by itself. The serpent was created by God. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So what Satan does here is, is to call into the question the goodness of God. It's like... Uh, it's, it's a statement of disbelief. It's, it's, it's as if and it's, the young people will, will get this, okay? It's as if some of you teens, you tell your parents or you tell your friends that your parents said that you couldn't go on a, a, to the beach with them for spring break. You couldn't go to Daytona for spring break. They won't let you go. And your friends say, are you serious? Did your parents really say that? I mean, did they not trust you? What, what, is, what is their problem? 
Your parents are weird. So that is the sense of the serpent's question to Eve here. It's a harmless question on the surface, but it is designed to get her to start to doubt God's goodness. He's not yet challenging God's command, but he wants Eve to doubt that God has her best interest at heart. He wants her to doubt the goodness of God. Notice the way that he asked the question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He frames his question in a way that makes God, God's original command seem more restrictive than it really was. The original command in Genesis 2, 16, 17 reads like this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, you may surely eat of every tree. You see the difference here. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God told Adam to freely eat. He could have any, anything he wanted in this garden. The idea in the original language is that, that, God, that, that Adam could eat to his heart's content from any tree except one. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God's command was not so restrictive as the serpent implied in his question. Of all the trees in the garden, Adam and Eve could eat as much as they wanted. But this one single tree was off limits. It's like as, as parents, I, I get it. As young people, I know they get it too. Um, you can do all this, but there's one thing that you can't do, and that's the one thing they fixate on. This happens here. In verses 2 and 3, we see Eve's reply to, to his question. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now her first mistake was talking to this snake. This was, this was the first problem here. She should have immediately dropped what she was doing and ran to, ran to Adam, who actually the text says that he was with her. So what was he doing? He should have crushed the thing's head. Right then and there in the garden. And listen, that is exactly what God promised. Genesis 3.15, we call it the Proto-Evangelion, about Christ our Redeemer, that He would one day crush the serpent's head. Christ, the second Adam, would do what the first Adam failed to do. But she talked and listened. And you can already see the doubt beginning to creep up in her, in her reply. Verse 2. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But that's not what God said at all. He said you may surely or freely eat of every tree. Words matter. Little words matter. Little words have big implications. The original command is full of freedom and goodness. But Eve leaves out the words that express the freedom of God's command. She starts to question the goodness of God and what He had given them. And instead of her trusting in God's gracious provision, she began to fixate on the one thing that He had set that boundary around. The next thing that Eve says to the serpent is in verse 3, that God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we know we've, we've been here before. 
Most of us probably are familiar with this. The part about touching the tree is not in the original command in chapter 2. One theory is that because the original command was given only to Adam, even not yet been created, Adam may have told Eve not to even touch it as an extra precaution against disobeying God. As if I were to tell my, my son, Calvin, who was four, don't touch the stove, don't even go anywhere near it. You're going to get burned if you do. Now, he can go near the stove. As long as he doesn't touch it, he's okay. So maybe, maybe Adam did this. I, I, I don't know. Seems reasonable, but where Scripture is silent, we have to be silent and avoid reading certain things back into the text. In any case, regardless of whether the, the extra prohibition came from Adam or maybe Eve added it herself, the command not to touch the, the tree is even more restrictive than what God had originally said. I heard one preacher say one time that they could have climbed all over that tree. <laughs> so Satan's first strategy is to, to get us to doubt God's goodness toward us. The second step in, in this progression of temptation that we see in Genesis 3 is the wrath of God denied. In verses 4 and 5, But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan finally shows his true nature in this direct, blatant, flat-out denial of the truthfulness of God. God told Adam that if they ate the fruit of this tree, knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And Satan calls God a liar. Notice, but the very first doctrine that Satan denies in Scripture is the doctrine of divine wrath. Look at the way he denies the wrath of God in verse 5. He promises them that they would be like God. Again, suggesting to Eve that God was withholding something from them that could make them better. He says, you're not going to die. That's not the real reason God doesn't want you to eat the fruit. He just knows that you'll be like him. What Satan wanted, his goal, was for Eve to have a lower view of God and a higher view of herself. He replaced the promised wrath of God against sin with the promise of divinity. When we diminish or deny the wrath of God against unbelief and disobedience, the entire framework of the Bible unravels. I say this to the young people all the time. Every, all that I meet and have ministry with, I say, if you have a friend, a teacher, or even a pastor who diminishes the consequences of sin or altogether denies the judgment of God against sin, beware of that person. Do not listen to them. They are selling you the same lie that the serpent sold you, that you will not surely die. The current culture of Christianity in America is obsessed with a distorted view of the love of God. 
in which the biblical God has been replaced by a God who is more like a passive and permissive parent whose threats of punishment are hollow and who just forgives everything in the end anyway. I remember some years ago, um, one popular evangelical pastor wrote a book, Rob Bell, in which he denied hell. The title of it was Love Wins. The only way we can get a glimpse of the glory of God's love for sinners is by viewing it against the backdrop of his wrath and hatred of sin. We see it very clearly. Paul spells it out in Romans 5, verse 8 and 9, when he says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So you see, the love of God is demonstrated in deliverance from the wrath of God, not the denial of it. The final step in the progression of Eve's temptation we see in Genesis 3 is the command of God disregarded. In verses 6 and 7, the Bible reads, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And with this, the serpent's deception was complete. His work was finished. His task was done. Eve believed his lie, and she demonstrated this by her total disregard for God's command. And she ate from that tree, which he said, do not eat from. You notice the progression in verse 6. She, first of all, she saw that the tree was good for food. That it was pleasant to look at. That it was desired to give one wisdom. Nothing about that sounds dangerous. Nothing about that sounds like it can bring the, the death that God said it would. But that's how Satan packages his lies. There is no magical quality about this, this fruit that suddenly just enlightened Adam and Eve when they ate it. It was the act of disobedience that brought guilt, shame, and death. It was the act of disobedience. You see, this whole account is really not about trees. It's not about fruit, wisdom, or being like God. It's about lordship. It's about submitting to the lordship of God and being obedient to what He's asked of us. Not doing things our way. The serpent enticed Eve to eat the fruit. But they could have already eaten of any, any tree they wanted. The servant said that this fruit would make them wise, but they already had immediate and unbroken access to the God of all wisdom. The servant said that they could be like God, but they were already perfectly formed in His image. So in the end, Adam and Eve wanted God's provision and blessing apart from God Himself. 
And that is the same fruit that Satan entices us with every day. We want God's stuff without God himself. In a sermon on Genesis 3, John Calvin comments, There is nothing better than yielding ourselves to God's governance. If we are not resolved and persuaded within ourselves that everything God has taught us is right and good, we will not be upheld by his promises and find our complete rest and contentment in them. See, that was their problem. They were not content with what he had given. And you notice here at the end of the day, (laughs) the serpent is nowhere to be found. He's gone. Once the deed is done, Adam and Eve are left standing there naked and afraid, trying to sew together fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. You see, Satan cloaks his... He cloaks sin in beauty, happiness, fun, a good time. But after we eat the fruit of disobedience, he leaves us naked and ashamed, picking up the pieces on our own, trying to put our lives back together. But we can't. See, nothing we can do will fix the brokenness that sin brings to our lives. Only Christ can do that. Down in verse 21 of, of this chapter, chapter 3, verse 21, we see that God himself makes Adam and Eve clothes from animal skins. Probably the very first death for sin to take place on this planet. Verse 21 of chapter 3. Many believe that this points eventually to the uh, Levitical sacrificial system and ultimately to the death of Christ in our place. I have no problem with that. But regardless of whether we can really safely draw that out of this text, what is true is that our own feeble attempts to cover our sin and shame is not enough. God Himself must provide a covering. And in Christ... He has given us a perfect righteousness. Luther called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness apart from us that makes us acceptable and beautiful in His sight once again. I want to close with just three brief thoughts of application. Number one, there are things, there are things that God has told us not to do. Sometimes Christians are so afraid of getting caught up in legalism. And I I feel that tension. (laughs) As a parent, I feel it. We're so afraid of of being legalistic that we forget that there really are certain things that God has set boundaries around. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 gives us a, a sampling. Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, wow, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there are things that God is... There are trees... Okay, that God has told us not to eat from. But we live in obedience to His command, not out, of, not out of legalism, but out of submission to His Lordship. Number two, do not linger around temptation. 
Recognize when you are being tempted. We all know it. Seek refuge from temptation in the Lord Jesus. Do not experiment with sin. Satan is far too clever for us to flirt with temptation. We have to, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, to be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, that ancient foe, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So don't linger around temptation. Sometimes that might mean you have to turn the the screen off. Number three, be satisfied with God himself. Westminster Confession beautifully states it, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Is it not enough that the creator of the universe made us to be in communion with him? Is it not enough that the same God who flung the cosmos into existence and he upholds it by the word of his power also created us to enjoy him? There is infinitely more joy in God than we will ever find in self-satisfying pleasures in this world. And we will never experience the true freedom and joy that we seek until we seek it in the enjoyment of God himself. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to invite you to take a a few moments and and think about the the tragedy that is Genesis chapter 3. Do we see ourselves there along with Eve, doubting the goodness of God, denying his holy wrath, disregarding his command? The only rescue, the only remedy for our fallenness is the gospel of the Lord Jesus, his perfect life and atoning death in our place so that we could be made right with holy God. I admonish you this morning to turn to Christ and trust in Him alone for salvation. Father, I ask you to work in the hearts of of those present this morning. Lord, if there are those among us who have been wandering at a distance... Pray that you will draw them close, Lord. We know that we will not come unless you draw us. So I ask you to do just that. I pray that if there is one who is lost, who is out of relationship with you, I pray that you will bring that person to repentance and faith. Lord, let us all see the danger of temptation. Let us all learn from our parents, our first parents, the strategy that the the enemy uses, the tactics. Let us run to the cross, hide behind 
the glory of the, the gospel of Christ, who alone is our Savior, let us find refuge in Him. Bring us to Yourself this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.